The $1.8 trillion pile of student debt amassing in the United States has been painted as a broad societal problem, but like everything else in America, this does not fall equally on everyone's shoulders. As Jaleel Mustafa Bishop explains, black borrowers, and particularly black women borrowers, disproportionately carry the burden of this debt mountain, leading to a vicious cycle that subjugates an already marginalized class of citizens. After two years of the pandemic and the impact that's had on this student debt crisis, Bishop sees a few ways out for how we can move forward as a country. That's next on the Consortium for Policy Research and Education's Research Minutes podcast. Welcome to Research Minutes. I'm John Crescenzo, your host. And on this episode, I'm speaking with Jaleel Mustafa Bishop, Assistant Professor at Villanova University. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here today to talk a little bit about this important issue. So to jump right in, how did you come to study this work around the issue of black student debt? So when really when I think about my journey into studying student loans, studying higher education, finance, um, it really was starting with my own lived experiences as a black student, as a black borrower, but also as a person who's deeply connected to a community and a family of other black people who have borrowed student debt. And my first line of research in higher education was looking at the geography of education opportunity. And this was a project where I was really studying how a community across generations have experienced education opportunity. And what I realized in that study is that if I was talking to parents, if I was talking to newly enrolled college students or people starting the early years of their adult life, everyone in this Black community has student loan debt. It was the common experience that really bonded together almost 50 different interviewees I spoke to in this study. And this study wasn't really about student loan debt, but it became very apparent that this was a collective issue um, that was impacting this community. And I wanted to, again, understand from my lived experience, from that research, what were the, the larger ways that student loan debt was impacting Black borrowers across the country. Great. So your work touches on many areas. But first, can you give us some background and explain how student debt falls disproportionately on Black borrowers? and how it's also important to contextualize the black student debt problem in terms of historical inequities? Yeah, so when thinking of the student debt crisis, we often hear about the large $1.7, $1.8 trillion outstanding student loan balance that um, the Department of Education largely carries. We hear about borrowers who are struggling to make payments or in default, those who are making payments, but not actually seeing their balance go down. And that's kind of the student debt crisis overall. In my research, I show that what is a crisis for the majority of borrowers is really been even more devastating for Black borrowers in particular. And we know this in the sense that Black borrowers are more likely to borrow student loans in the first place. 80 to 90 percent of Black students who enroll borrow student loans, much higher than any other group. It, they enroll in the lowest funded higher ed institutions, the lowest performing higher ed institutions, and are targeted by the most predatory institutions. So not only are they borrowing student loans to pay for higher ed, they're entering a really segregated and stratified higher ed system. And then Black students are more likely to face wage gaps. So meaning they're underpaid, underemployed, or sometimes just simply not employed, even despite having the same credentials as their non-Black counterparts. So really at each stage of the higher ed pathway, Black people are paying more, but really not getting access to the same opportunity. They don't have the same inclusion in higher ed. 
um, as their non-Black counterparts. And that creates a very predictable crisis. So you're asking a group that historically has had their wealth and income base extracted and destabilized because of racist policies across housing, across credit markets, across the labor market. You're asking them to pay the most for higher ed, which is effectively what a loan is. It's saying not only pay the price, but also pay interest. So you're asking those who have the least to pay the most. And then all the promises, all the promises of the return on a college credential on borrowing the student loans as a good debt does not show up for Black borrowers um, across the board because of how structural racism repeats itself across every step of the pathway. Now we know that we have data that shows us that when we look at Black borrowers 20 years after they borrow student loans, that on average they owe 95% of their balance. When we look at white borrowers 20 years after they borrow student loans, they have paid down about 93, 94% of their balance. So it's, uh, again, it's all, you have the same student loan policy, but Black borrowers are experiencing it in a whole different world and in a whole different way. That's a great point, uh, which brings me to my next question. While experiences for Black students and borrowers are similar, but not a monolith, as your paper mentions, can you discuss the differentiating factors among Black students, such as what you call the double whammy, what Black women face when it comes to repayment? The important piece always when talking about any issue related to the Black community is that we live in a society in a national conversation that often views Black people as having the same exact experience. Um, in my research, I try to show that while we are collectively carrying student loan debt, how we experience that can look really different based on gender. So we know that Black women enroll in higher education more than Black men or um, non-Black women, but that also means that they're borrowing more student loan debt within the Black community. But actually, when we look at it across all groups, Black women borrow more student loan debt than any other group. So that's helping us understand what's going on around gender and race. And in my research, when I talk to Black women, you know, in my national project, we surveyed 1,300 Black borrowers and interviewed 100 of them. The majority of our sample were Black women. They often talked about how student loans were not just about paying for higher education, but also living expenses for caretaking if they were parents while going through higher education, that student loans were about trying to get as many credentials as they could because they needed a buffer against not just racial discrimination, but also the ways that race and gender intersected in the labor market to form their, their discrimination they experience. Also, when thinking about what's going on with Black borrowers, that we know Black parents are borrowing Parent PLUS loans at really high rates. And what is even more disturbing about what's happening with Black parents is that Black parents who the government already declares on their financial aid forms that they have a $0 expected family contribution. And right after that declaration, the government then turns around and says, well, if you want your kid to go to college, you have to borrow a student loan, even though we have already declared that you actually can't afford this student loan or financial payments for higher ed. So a lot of Black parents actually are low income and they're borrowing Parent PLUS loans at higher rates than we see middle class white families. Um, and Parent PLUS loans not only come with higher interest rate, but they have less protection. Um, you can't enroll in an income-based repayment plan as easily and so on. Another key piece about Black borrowers is around the institution types. So a lot of Black students are going to historically Black colleges who are more likely to have some of the outcomes that we want from higher ed, such as job mobility, graduation, um, and a, a good campus sense of self as you're navigating the higher ed experience. But HBCUs, historically Black colleges, have been underfunded. So 
students are often borrowing more to make up for those historic gaps where state and federal governments have intentionally excluded historically Black colleges from their funding, not only historically, but still to this day, where many states have refused to fund HBCUs at the same levels as um, non-HBCUs. So again, if students are carrying that burden because these institutions haven't been invested in, it means students have to borrow more to attend institutions that they are more likely to have better outcomes with. So it's a matter of looking at gender, looking at what's happening, not just to students, but also their parents, and thinking about the different institutions that Black borrowers are enrolling in. And that was something in our, in our study that we tried to highlight, um, and that was really pervasive, that there is diversity within what's happening to Black borrowers. So they're all experiencing kind of what many call a debt trap, but they're experiencing it in different ways. Yeah, that's an excellent point. You know, in order to get ahead, you got to go to college, right? And to do that, you got to take on debt. So can you talk about the narratives surrounding higher education and student debt, as well as the sentiments and opinions black students and borrowers have when it comes to debt relief? It's important for us to understand that there is a master narrative and in a policy narrative, even a research narrative that has dominated the student loan discussion for a long time until right now. And that narrative mainly has been that student loans are a good debt, that it's okay if students are borrowing student loans. It's even okay if they're borrowing large balances because there was a belief that you are always getting a return on your investment that um, was going to make the student loans worth it. And we sold this message to no community more aggressively than we did with, with communities of color in particular. And we see this whenever there's an investigation of the fraudulent and predatory practices of for-profit colleges, a lot of that messaging that they use to prey on communities of color is, you know, come to higher ed, it's going to pay off. Student loans are going to pay off. And I think that's a key piece to understand in this conversation before we talk about kind of outcomes and views is that there's been this dominant messaging that student loans will pay off. And Black borrowers, regardless if they believed it, if they had the right information, aren't really alternative choices besides going higher ed and trying to pursue this higher opportunity. I tell people that Black students, we go to higher education like our livelihoods depend on it because in fact it does. Even if we know it may be a trap, even if we know it's a gamble, even if we know it's a risk, we know that the, the reality is that without taking that risk, we are already dealing with kind of a sinking foundation, which is a labor market that doesn't pay well for those who don't have credentials. So that's kind of the, I think, the larger context. And then in my research, what I show is that Black borrowers reported very clearly that student loans were not a good debt, that 66% of the Black borrowers in our study said they regretted taking their student loans. Almost half of Black borrowers said they have not received a positive return from their student loans, which again is in vast contrast to what some of our elected officials and longtime researchers on this issue, what they have been reporting publicly. The number one solution to student loans right now is income-based repayment plans. So these are plans that adjust your payments based on your income, your student loan payments based on your income. And these plans were created to kind of be a temporary fix for borrowers who were struggling. And then what happened is they realized starting in the 90s that borrowers weren't struggling temporarily, that they were not able to make their payments over decades. So now income-based repayments have went from a temporary fix to now they're the primary solution to switch borrowers from 10-year plans to 20-year plans to 25-year plans. And Black borrowers said, made it very clear that that made their debt a lifetime debt sentence, that they had no hope that they would be able to repay this debt, that even if they were making payments, they were not seeing their principal go down because the payments were barely covering interest. 
So really the primary solution, again, that some of our biggest voices on the issue are putting forth, Black borrowers were rejecting, saying that, yes, this offers some relief, but it didn't offer any hope. And that even if they were able to make their payments, the, the large growing balances meant that they had a high debt to income ratio. So this was impacting their ability to qualify for a mortgage, to take advantage of any refinancing that many people did when interest rates decreased, to even rent apartments because, again, of this growing debt balance on their credit reports. Some share stories of, of having to explain in interviews um, where jobs ran their credit report, why they have a student debt balance, why they haven't been able to pay it down. So a type of shaming even in the labor market. Um, and then I'll say the last point, and I made, and this was important for my study, was that I didn't want Black borrowers only to tell me what the problems were. I wanted them also to have an opportunity to share what do they need and what are their solutions. So we provided a list of some of the most common solutions in the national policy discussion from decreasing interest rates, from free college, to even the option to select that you don't think the government should intervene at all. And 80% of Black borrowers selected or ranked at the highest level um, full debt cancellation. And when we talk to borrowers in interviews, why debt cancellation when that may be some, why full debt cancellation when that may be something that's not practical in some people's eyes, or that may be something that allows some borrowers that we see as being well off to benefit. And Black borrowers gave us really two reasons. They said, first, student loans are racial injustice. That to ask a community of people who have been historically and currently excluded from accessing higher ed to borrow the most and pay the most reflects a long history of using debt as a tool of racial control. Second, borrowers made clear that they didn't believe that there was a way to do a targeted student debt policy that didn't hurt Black borrowers. So if you do it by the type of degree, Biden, for example, proposed only canceling undergraduate degree. That ignores that Black bachelor degree graduates go to grad school at three times the rate as white borrowers. And they told us in our study because they're trying to get more credentials to have a buffer in a labor market that's underpaying and underemployed. If you try to limit debt cancellation by income, it ignores that black borrowers in our study sometimes had six-figure income, but almost every single time also has six-figure debt. So income is not the same as wealth. And we know there's a large racial wealth gap and income limitations to cancellation is doing nothing to acknowledge that racial wealth gap. So borrowers said that they didn't trust that targeted would actually make sure black people still benefit. And they thought that cancellation was a part of a larger restorative justice movement to right past wrongs that have happened to the black community in and outside of higher ed. I think this kind of gets at the heart of the issue, right? We're looking at, as you kind of mentioned before, at something like 1.6 trillion in debt, and it's likely to almost double over the next decade. But we already know the government lends out billions of dollars a year to students for higher ed. So you mentioned this in other discussions, which is whether students should receive this money as a debt. So can you please talk about that? So what's important is that there is a lot of what I call a politics of distraction right now around student debt cancellation. And... I call it distraction is because there are people who are experts on student loan policy who continue to communicate to the public, I think, really misleading conclusions. So they'll say things like those who have student debt are rich or they're well off. And that's not supported by the data or the evidence that we have. Or they'll say things like canceling student debt will cost us one point seven trillion dollars. And again, these are people who are experts on the issue and they know that canceling student debt does not cost one point seven trillion dollars. Um, so that's important to point out because I think there has been a lot of distraction and really misleading statements 
that have hindered us being able to have an honest conversation about what does student loan reform and cancellation look like. So first, it's important to understand that student loans, that's money that's already spent. So the $1.7 trillion is out the door. We are not having a debate about if the government should spend a new $1.7 trillion. The debate is actually about should the government cancel that debt and stop reproducing a system that grows um, the student debt balance by 107%, which it has done in the last decade to bring us to almost $2 trillion. Or should we switch to a system where we cancel that debt and start to fund higher education through grants or free college so that we're not creating this loan system that really doesn't benefit students, but it vastly benefits loan servicers who are constantly sued by state and the federal government for fraudulent practices debt collectors who we pay $40 for every dollar they collect. And it's really hard to collect money from people who don't actually have money to repay. Um, But they still get paid hundreds of millions of dollars to engage in those practices. Um, To colleges in the for-profit and in traditional higher ed who engage in really predatory and price hiking tactics that extract, again, a lot of income and um, wealth from students. So the question here is not, are we spending 1.7 trillion is that we already spent the 1.7 trillion and now we have to decide are we going to spend billions trying to collect money from a group of people in our country who have made it clear that they don't have the income to repay this debt or are we going to say this was a policy failure stop spending the billions trying to collect that 1.7 trillion and move towards higher education as a public good remove loan servicers who again we are spending millions suing each year remove debt collectors who again aren't actually good at collecting debt, have the Department of Education stop spending more money fighting people in bankruptcy than the debt is actually worth. So the Department of Ed will fight someone trying to get their student loan debt discharged and their student loan debt may be 20,000, but they spend 40,000 to beat the case or beat the student loan borrower. This is wasteful spending that is happening um, that we could stop and say, let's move to a system that gets the cost of higher education under control, creates federal state partnerships so that we can offer a free um, and public higher education that doesn't have predatory for-profits or predatory loan servicers or predatory debt collecting agencies in it. And most importantly, it removes the Department of Education from having a $1 trillion student debt portfolio that starts to make them look like some of these other predatory actors. So that's always important in the student debt cancellation. We're not trying to spend $1.7 trillion. We're saying it's time to write this debt off and do something different so that we're not in the same place, but in a worse balance 10 years from now. Yeah, absolutely. And this brings me to my next question. The pandemic hit, you know, almost two years ago, right? Or I think it's actually exactly two years ago. And since then, we've seen the federal government, right, suspend essentially all student loans extending it, you know, the moratorium a couple of times. So can you give us some background on that and the consequences of that policy on on borrowers and particularly uh, black student borrowers? I launched the National Black Student Debt Study right before the pandemic really hit. And, you know, so I didn't know the pandemic was coming, but it came and it meant that I was able to hear from 1300 black borrowers as they were experiencing the payment pause, as they were going through the Biden-Trump election cycle. And they made it clear to me that the payment pause was kind of the first kind of sign of hope, the first kind of light at the end of the tunnel. So the majority of our borrowers across income levels or across degree levels reported that 
they weren't able to have a savings account, that they were struggling to have kind of that basic safety net and that with the payment pause, they were now able to build um, a safety net for the first time. We heard from uh, many borrowers who were saying that they were thinking about now that they were able to accumulate some money, you know, to switch jobs because many of them reported being in jobs that they they would leave if it wasn't for their student loan debt. Being able to actually pursue a house now that they were able to save some money towards a down payment. Being able to have children because now they feel like they can handle the childcare and telling us that without the payment pause, that they would have no idea how they will be handling childcare during this pandemic. So there were all these life planning activities that we say we want productive citizens to engage in that this payment pause made possible. And that's something that we heard from borrowers that with the payment pause, they were really able to start to do financial and life planning that they said that they weren't able to do or were limited in because of their student loan debt. So I tell people all the time that the payment pause makes clear that there are a whole bunch of benefits to borrowers if they don't have to pay the student loan debt, that the government can operate for almost two years without collecting any of this student loan money. And we didn't fall apart as a country. We didn't fall apart as a federal government or Department of Ed. And that we have an opportunity here to reimagine what can be possible here now that student loans are paused. This is a historic opportunity to say this debt is not being collected. If we're ever going to try to collect any of it, we at the very least should fix some of our most glaring and gaping holes in the student loan system. Yeah, and I think I, I think I read in the Wall Street Journal some time ago about student loan companies dropping their contracts with the, with the federal government. Yeah, and that was, that was about accountability, very basic accountability. So the Department of Ed has a lot of authority already to not only regulate loan servicers, but they also have the authority to discharge debt, they have authority to cancel debt, to um, reform and change income-based repayment plans. So I tell people that a lot of what happens in student loans, it's not that we need congressional legislation. We need an administration that is willing to make policy choices that centers the borrowers and not protecting banks, loan servicers, or again, this large outstanding student debt portfolio the government has. And so what happened in this moment from organizing from the student debt racial justice movement, that there was pressure to try to regulate loan servicers before loans were turned back on. And when I say it was basic accountability, it was things such as, as a loan servicer, you have to show that you are enrolling students in the correct program. You have to show that you are providing students with the correct information. And loan servicers, they start to drop out because the idea of having to actually prove that they're doing the job that we paid them hundreds of millions of dollars to do was a line too far for many of them. And they refused to renew their contracts or they knew that having to answer any potential investigations coming down the line or state level lawsuits coming down the line would also expose other fraudulent behavior they were engaging in. And many of them decided to exit. And they exit at the last minute, forcing the Department of Ed to try to figure out how do we transfer 16 million borrowers to other loan servicers that despite saying they're going to turn student loans on two other times, still to this day, we know that there are borrowers who still have not had their loans transferred. Meaning that during this pandemic, they can't check in with a loan servicer and say, what is my payment going to be? Let me re-enroll in, in auto pay. Let me work to get on income-based repayment plan because they're in this gray area, despite the Department of Ed telling us they were going to turn loans back on without actually having this process fulfilled and communicated to borrowers. And I think this is kind of missed, right? Where a lot of the student debt is centered with the Department of Ed. 
and I think close to all loans are, are backed with a federal guarantee. So, yeah, can you give us some background and, and clarity on this? So when the student loan system was originally created, it was done through the federal government guaranteeing the loans that banks lent out to students. So banks were able to lend loans to students and the government said, if the student can't pay, we'll guarantee the bank you know, gets their money, it gets their profit. And to really lock this type of logic in, the government created Sally Mae, where they guaranteed Sally Mae a profit on every single loan, regardless if Sally Mae gave a loan in the most fraudulent way possible, the most predatory way possible. And what we discovered when the, re- when the recession came in 2008 is that Sally Mae was doing exactly that, giving out loans without any regard to what was happening, that when banks were going down in the mortgage industry, that the student loan industry was also about to go down. And one of the first bailouts we did during the 2008 recession was legislation to offer bailout funds to the student loan industry. So what also happened during that time is that we, um, this is under the Obama administration, is that they shifted from doing federally guaranteed loans to what they call direct lending, meaning that loans now are coming directly from the Department of Education. And then loan servicers just are in charge of making sure payments are being collected and that borrowers have accurate information. And the idea around this was to cut out banks who were driven by profit so that you could have the government, which is supposed to be more driven by what's best for the student, what's best for the borrower. But we simply haven't had a Department of Education that's been willing to protect borrowers at the level that they have the power to protect them, to reform student loans so that they're not punitive, that we're not punishing students if they miss a payment, we're not making it hard for them to discharge loans that have been defrauded. Really what we have had is a Department of Education that at every turn, if they offer relief, they offer 10 hoops that you have to jump through to get that relief. Um, and that's why we have public service loan forgiveness that has failed as a policy. That's why we have over 3 million students who are eligible for debt cancellation under income-based repayment plans, meaning that they've been paying for 20 years plus and only 32 people on record have actually got that debt cancellation, even though we have over 3 million who have been paying for 20 plus years. And this is all because the Department of Ed has administrative burdens So this is kind of my more activist work on student debt. I work with an organization called the Debt Collective, where we help borrowers navigate these policies. And sometimes they're rejected because they turned a form in late. They missed the signature on the paper. They left a fraudulent school. One borrower was denied because they left a fraudulent school seven days too early, according to the Department of Ed, even though they have now discharged loans for everyone who's there seven days after that certain day. So it's things like that that are so arbitrary and so many hoops that it makes it hard for any of these policies to be considered done in good faith. Also missing from the public discussion is the servicing side of loans. Can you talk about how the government is already spending billions of dollars on loan servicing as well as debt collection and court actions? So we have to understand that we present to the public that loan servicers I had a borrower who who explained this very well. They said that we present loan servicers as if they're financial planners. But when you interact with loan servicers as a borrower, you realize they're more like used car salesmen. And that's an important distinction because we have a a Department of Education that continues to tell us loan servicers are going to get the job done, that they're going to navigate borrowers through with best intentions. And then reality, evidence, federal investigations, state investigations tell us that it's the complete opposite. But again, we know it's broken. We have 
miles of evidence that it's broken, but we have elected officials who refuse to say that it's broken, we need to do something different. So loan servicers, we pay hundreds of millions of dollars. We renew contracts for loan servicers who we have evidence, we have found guilty in a way of not fulfilling their contracts, but we feel like they're almost sometimes too big to fail, meaning that they have so many student loans under their portfolio that we have to renew anyway. For years, mainly through the Obama and Trump administration, there was an initiative to try to create a more consolidated loan servicing central system. We spent hundreds of millions of dollars trying to create more accountability in a centralized process. That didn't happen. And effectively, through the failure of not being able to create that centralized accountability system, it allowed loan servicers when a pandemic came to kind of leverage up even more. So to negotiate with even more power to kind of get the contracts to push back against some accountability measures and so on. We also pay debt collectors. As I said earlier, we pay about $40 for them to go in and collect about a dollar for every 40 we pay. We're spending money that many could deem wasteful to try to collect debt from people who simply do not have the financial means to repay. And then the Department of Ed and the Department of Justice, they do sue and go after borrowers to collect money. So they garnish wages, they garnish Social Security, they garnish earned income tax credits, which are really crucial for low-income families. And they often will fight borrowers and, and bankruptcy court even when the money spent to fight someone trying to discharge their student loans because of health reasons or discharge it because of permanent disability is more money than the student loan balance is actually worth. So there's all this wasteful spending that is happening to really support a system that allows private firms, private agencies to make a lot of money off of trying to extract money from borrowers, but that's not actually doing what student loans are supposed to do, which is fund an education that then was going to get a large return in the labor market for borrowers. And this has failed uh, for no group more than students of color, low-income students, non-traditional students, and has effectively created the student debt crisis that I think now nationally and as a country, we have had to contend with something here is not working, that we're seeing from people who went to medical school, to people who went to a certificate program, to a community college, to a public four-year, that they're all are reporting harm and suffering under student loan debt. And it's something that loan servicers haven't really been a solution to, but often have been the ones who we have been able to identify as a key kind of issue in this larger problem. Yeah, excellent point. Now, not only are you a researcher, but you also have an activist side. And you and the organizations you work with have held discussions with the Biden administration what are the arguments you deal with when it comes to the opposition to student debt? So I believe, and I've talked to, you know, congressional staff, elected officials, congressional leadership, White House staff at this point, Department of Ed, the undersecretary. I think that there is a consensus across the board that student loans are predatory. Maybe we don't believe all of them are predatory. Maybe we don't believe that they only can be predatory. So some people believe they can be reformed, but there is a consensus that student loans have been predatory, that they have inflicted a lot of harm. The disagreement is often around what should be done next. And I think that a lot of what should be done next is not centered around what we know borrowers need. What's a long-term solution? It's centered around what's politically digestible. 
And we, we have had elected officials from the Obama, Trump, and now Biden administration who simply have not been willing to make the, I think, the justice move, the follow the economic imperative that says reforming and overhauling the student loan system is going to have benefits for the economy, is going to have benefits for borrowers, is going to allow us to start the pathway to reimagine higher education as a public good. And I think the main arguments that we hear aren't because these people believe these arguments. So I just want to, I want to preface it that it's because of this politics of distraction. So we'll hear the majority of people who have student debt are well off and rich. I think that argument not only is harmful and honestly disrespectful to borrowers who have been struggling with student loan debt, it's just simply not supported by the evidence. That when we look at who carries student loan debt, we know that the majority of student loan borrowers have no wealth or negative wealth. When we look at the Government Accountability Office just released a report in the last week or so that said that the majority of student loan borrowers are likely to struggle with repayment or default if we turn student loans back on. None of these things are evidence of a group of people who are rich or well-off. These are all evidence of people who are struggling with student loan payments. We know that 60% of student loans that have been issued since 2013 have had their balances increase, so meaning that these balances are growing rather than being paid down over time. Again, more evidence that there are not signs of people who are well-off or rich. So what we have done is take the less than 1%, less than 2% of borrowers who have student loan debt who went to Harvard Business School or Harvard Med School, and we have made them the face of the issue instead of the teachers who have six-figure debt, instead of the social workers who have six-figure debt, who had to go to grad school in order to stay in their profession, who were counting on public service loan forgiveness as real relief. And we have a lot of arguments from politicians who instead try to put forth the Harvard student, the Yale student. Um, and this is something that Biden shared, you know, in a town hall that he, don't, he doesn't want to cancel debt for the Ivy League students. And you're talking about you don't want to enact a policy for what may be less than 1% of all borrowers. So I think that's a common argument. Another piece is that we don't need to cancel student debt because we already have a solution. And that solution is income-based repayment plans. And again, it doesn't fit the reality. When you borrow a student loan, the government says it will take you 10 years to repay. An income-based repayment plan changes that agreement. It moves it to 20 to 25 years. And it, re- it requires you to recertify every single year. So you may, be, you may recertify 10 or 20 times. It requires that if you fall out of that plan, you may have interest tacked onto the top of your outstanding balance. So there's a punitive piece to it. And then borrowers are making it clear that they're not actually having success in paying down their student loan debt, even though people insist that the solution is already here on the table. We just need to make it better. And I tell people, well, income-based repayment plans were first made in the 90s, and we now have about six of them because we have tried to make it better over and over and over again. And we have kind of reached the same result is that having people pay debt over 20 to 25 years is really punishing. It's really hard to administer. And that it ends up making a lot of money for the loan servicer and doesn't offer that much long-term relief for the borrower, who, again, is supposed to be the main person we're supporting here. Great point. And as you mentioned earlier, a significant growing portion of people facing student debt are families from Parent PLUS loans. Who, you know, unless they go through an extra hurdle, they don't qualify for income-based repayment plans. And I'll say, I'll say one more point on this question of what's common arguments out here. The thing that's interesting is that 
when politicians or researchers or economists say we already have a solution, it's income-based repayment plan, they're also saying that we already agree that some debt should be canceled because every income-based repayment plan cancels debt. In theory, it's supposed to cancel debt after 20 to 25 years. So if you already agree that the government should have this debt canceled for these borrowers after 20 to 25 years, the question then is not if we should cancel it, it's why are we making people sit under debt for 20 to 25 years? Debt that we know is not going to be repaid. We're already agreeing that we're going to cancel it in 20 years. And we can't even document what's the real harm to the government, but we can document what's the clear harm to borrowers, particularly Black borrowers, who are sitting under this punishing debt. And then, as you just mentioned, they're thinking about, well, I have my own debt. I'm a parent. Now I'm going to have Parent PLUS loans. And then my children are going to borrow debt too. So you're allowing this kind of generational debt trap to persist, even though we all agree that eventually we're going to cancel this debt anyway. So why are we kicking kind of the bucket down the road is the, the question I often um, rebuttal to those who make the income-based repayment solution argument. And as you pointed out, we're kind of stuck in this situation. There's a lot of discussion, but not much action on addressing or canceling the debt. So just to rewind for a second, during the presidential primary, both Warren and Bernie talked about wiping away 50000 in student debt. So say we get a Hail Mary pass into the end zone and that happens. How big of so an effect would that have on the racial wealth that we gap? have to understand? Is first, when we talk about the racial wealth gap, and this goes into just understanding how sometimes we choose progress narratives over justice impact. And what I mean by that is that wealth is about assets. We all will agree on that, that we will say that if someone's wealthy, it's because they have assets. Unfortunately, in our country, particularly, I, I would say, amongst white elected officials and even white researchers, that we sometimes will distort or, or move away from kind of common sense understandings of issues in order to try to present a progress narrative. So what happened with student loans is that we try to justify student loans by saying if we cancel student debt, that's going to drastically close the racial wealth gap. But the problem is that getting rid of debt is great, but it's not the same as having assets. So we know when we really look at the research, that canceling student debt doesn't necessarily close the gap. What it does is that it brings Black borrowers out of the, the hole so that they can actually get to the start line of building assets. So what I mean by that is that the majority of Black borrowers are in negative wealth, meaning that they're not just at zero, they're below zero. And by canceling student debt, you bring borrowers up to the start line. So to put that in numbers, 52% of households from the survey of consumer finance that had student loan debt had negative wealth. When you looked at the households without negative wealth or the households without student debt, only 25% had negative wealth. So removing that student loan debt really brings Black borrowers to what I like to say the starting line to potentially start building assets. And that's just important to understand because we don't want to mislead people and say that by getting rid of debt, that closes the racial wealth gap. Because the racial wealth gap requires assets. And the racial wealth gap was created through hundreds of years of racism and violence and a network of policies. And it's going to take a network of structural policies to undo it and provide real relief, such as reparations. So I just like to make that clear because student debt cancellation will be amazing for Black borrowers, but that is not the same as closing the racial wealth gap. 
But the other key piece is that if we are, if we do cancel student debt, like I said, it brings borrowers out of negative, black borrowers out of negative wealth. We know that it's going to allow black borrowers on average to have anywhere from two, three, four hundred dollars of monthly cash back into their households, which will be transformative. It's going to allow borrowers, even if they aren't making payments, to not have this large balance um, on their credit report. So that's going to affect what they do in the credit market, what they're able to do with buying a home, what they're able to do with potentially getting small business loans um, and other investments. And then, you know, when we look at what could be the possibility if we cancel student debt, we always say that we can look at the evidence of the last two years. We can look at economists who have modeled this for us and told us that the GDP is likely to grow from 80 to $100 billion a year um, over the next 10 years by canceling student debt. So there's a lot of evidence that we have. We have like a real life experiment right now. Where we can look at two years of seeing amazing relief and celebration by borrowers who haven't had to make payments. And then we can look at economic models that show that if you infuse those monthly payments back into the pockets of borrowers, that is going to have amazing ripple effects throughout the economy. And we should do all those things because those are great things for Black borrowers and the country as a whole, but we shouldn't tell a false narrative that's going to close the racial wealth gap. Because the racial wealth gap, again, was created by decades of um, racism and racist policies, and it's going to take a network and a long-term commitment to undo it. Often the counter-argument we hear is we can't cancel student debt because that doesn't fix the problem of the high cost of education. So can you respond to that and how student debt cancellation is connected to building a universal higher ed system as well as what that should look like? When the question is raised of, okay, well, if we cancel student debt, how do we then stop us from getting back in the same situation again because college is still expensive and we still need to pay for it? And I first remind people that we already pay for college. We're just, the government already spends that money. We're just choosing to do it as a loan. So we could spend that money as as a grant, as a federal state partnership. There's a lot of ways to spend that money, but the money is already there. We spend about $84 billion each year to issue student loans. That could be grants. That could be, again, a federal state partnership where that $84 billion is shared across both the federal and state government to make higher education accessible. I also like to remind people that every organization and movement and activists I know who has called for debt cancellation, they have also been the people on the front lines of free college and universal higher education. So one of the first pieces of legislation that we ever saw introduced around this issue was by Bernie Sanders and um, Congresswoman Omar and AOC and so on. And when they introduced that legislation, At the press conference, they had next to them 15 members of the Debt Collective, which is a student, which is a debt, a debtors union that does a lot of the leading organizing around student loans. They had their members right next to them because those members were some of the earliest advocates um, of not just debt cancellation, but also free college. So we always group those things together because we understand that they that they need to happen together. That doesn't mean, though, that they necessarily have to happen at the same time. And the reason I say that is because free college will require congressional legislation. It will require that. Canceling student loan debt is something, as we all are living through right now, can be done with executive action. And that's the difference here, is that canceling student loan debt can happen right now by the power that's invested in 
um, the executive branch. That that this is something that comes from the Higher Ed Act of 1965, which gives the president the power to um, compromise or cancel student loans. Free college will have to be congressional legislation. And by canceling student debt, that is going to be a groundswell of support in order to build the movement to bring about free college. And this is really the history of the country. When you study movement building that has led to large policy change, sometimes it's the small policy change or the or getting half of the policy change that then ushers in the larger, more systematic change. It's sometimes having the government pass legislation that gives some type of support to unions that then allows unions to grow across the country. It's some type of support to desegregation that then allows it to ripple across the country. And in this same case, canceling student debt sends a message that higher education is a public good that then is going to have a groundswell of support across the country. And that's that's what movement builders are trying to do here around the policy. It's not say canceling student debt, we're good, walk away. It's saying canceling student debt and then let's get prepared to fight for free college. And now we're going to be able to fight even stronger because we're going to have just told 43 million borrowers plus the whole country that higher education should not be contingent on debt. And lastly, what recommendations do you have as a pathway forward to so address the student debt crisis? I always tell everyone that we have to understand right now we're talking about student loans, not because of great researchers, not because of elected officials, not because of amazing policy professionals. We are talking about student loan cancellation because we have had movement builders from the debt collective, from the movement for Black Lives, who have really put in a lot of energy and time to take what was considered a radical way out their idea and bring it to the center stage and really hope to reveal that the only thing that is absurd is that we continue to allow a broken system to do so much harm when we have a we have clear solutions and options in front of us so that's the first thing is that there is hope because there's a movement that has really brought cancellation from the fringe to the center and is really winning every day that we have had some cancellation from having for-profit students, loans discharged. That's from organizers. From having public service loan forgiveness expanded. That's from organizing. To having a student loan pause during an economic downturn. I said before, during the last downturn, the first thing we did is bail out loan servicers and banks. During this downturn, the first thing we did is pause student loans. Not once, not twice, but now a third time. That is from organizers. So we have hope because we are seeing real wins that's coming from um, movement building. And I would encourage people to figure out how to contribute to that movement, how to share your student loan story, how to join organizations like the Debt Collective or um, the NAACP who are doing a lot of organizing around student loans. I think that we also, we can't win kind of the gold standard of full debt cancellation. There are many options. There has been some bipartisan discussions about canceling interest on student loans about reforming income-based repayment plans so that they're not 20 years, but they could be 20, they could be 10 years where your debt is canceled each year rather than hoping and praying for this big, this big debt cancellation that comes at the end that simply has not come for the majority of people who have waited on it. We have the power to hold institutions accountable who are engaging in predatory practices. And that is the for-profit colleges who are settling with attorney generals every day or it's institutions like University of Southern California who are charging double, triple the amount for their online social work masters. 
that power is, is already embedded in the Department of Education. They just have to use it. So Department of Ed has authority. We do have a strong movement. We have had hundreds of millions of student loans canceled because of the wins that have come from the movement. And I think that we are right now on the edge of having broad-based cancellation and doing something that just simply hasn't been done in this country before. And I think we're very close. I think that we're close because of what organizers and movement builders have been able to do so far. And the recent case of the Corinthian Colleges the is Corinthian a great example 15. of a they pathway were forward. Students who were for-profit students who were defrauded by Corinthians College, who were just a part of all that just happened with Navient and the debt settlement. Those students, just 15 of them said, we're, going, we're doing a debt strike, that we are not repaying student loans because we were defrauded. And that was in about 2015. And that created such a national outcry that many students started saying we're doing a debt strike. And for the first time ever, the Department of Ed decided they're going to use a power that they already had, which was called borrower, borrower's defense to repayment, meaning that if you were defrauded, you can file a complaint and have your loans discharged. This was always on the, on the books, but the Department of Ed never used the policy. It wasn't until these students went on a strike, then got tens of thousands of other students to send in complaints to the Department of Ed saying, we want our borrower's defense to repayment complaint filed. It forced the Department of Ed for the first time to have to write the policy to actually cancel debt for the first time and then prove to everyone you can cancel debt. So that organizing of those 15 students has now brought us to a national conversation where the Department of Ed can't say, we don't know if we can cancel debt. We've already seen it happen to the tune of billions and billions of dollars. Um, but that shows you the power of that small groundswell that then has ripple effects that opens up just new possibilities. Um, that again, it doesn't come from your best data. It doesn't come from your best researchers, from your your professors or economists, it comes from those who are actually being harmed by the policy and coming together and making it clear that they need something different. Not just they hope the research shows something different or they hope the politician will do something different. They're moving with an urgency and a need. Well, Jaleel Mustafa Bishop is assistant professor at Villanova University. His paper once again is Legislation, Policy, and the Black Student Debt Crisis. Thank you so much, Jaleel. Well, thank you for having me. It was a great pleasure to talk about this issue, the work that's happening, and just happy to be here today. This podcast was brought to you by the Consortium for Policy Research and Education. Make sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts to keep up with all of our content.